It's true. I, I think this is how Elvis died. I think this is how our podcast died. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Friday, June 7th. My name is Ben Orenstein. I'm here today with Tom Dale and Yehuda Katz. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey. So you guys are uh, co-founders of Tilda and also working on Skylight as well, right? Skylight.io. That is that is correct. Uh, Yehuda and I and Carl Lurch, who you may know from working on Rails, as well as Leia Silber, uh, we started a company about, oh gosh, year and a half, two years ago? Yeah, yeah October will be two years. Well, August will be two years. Uh-huh. Do you say tilde or tilde? Tilde. It's, uh, it's tilde. It's like the punctuation in yeah, yeah. Spanish. Sure. Uh, I thought it, we thought it had special significance because uh, for for programmers, if you're using the Unix command line, mm-hmm. tilde means home. Right. So this is like our our home for open source work, I guess. That's kind of nice. So yeah, real you guys are sort of doing the 37 signals model, I guess. You're probably sick of hearing that, but you're a consultancy also working on a product. Yeah, we bootstrap, bootstrapped and proud. Yes, uh, I think uh, so. The last company actually where I met Yehuda was called uh, it was called Strobe. And and that was a, a really interesting experience for me because I had never worked at a, a startup before, and uh, it was great. But it was venture backed, and I think anytime you're working at a venture backed company, there's just a lot of pressure to grow the business. It's basically you know they need to see a return on their investment. Mm-hmm. So I think the model that we wanted here at Tilda was uh, a open source is very important. We we really value working on open source and doing standards work. Um, and I think most importantly, when you're, when you're building a company, one of the hardest parts about a company is building the team, right? Like uh, building a good team, whether that team is good is oftentimes orthogonal from whether or not the product is successful. True. But what ends up happening with these VC companies is that the product doesn't find uh, market fit quite fast enough. Uh, and then what happens is you have to acquire and the team ends up getting spread to the winds, right? Mm. So... I think our model going in was, well, let's create a vehicle for us to experiment on building products. And if the first, second, third, fourth, et cetera, aren't successful, well, we still have a great team and we don't have to go work at Facebook. <laughs> I like that. So what is your, uh, the breakdown of consulting to product work these days? Uh, so these days we're doing a lot more product work than when we started. When we started, it was pretty close to 100% consulting. And the goal was basically to ramp up enough cash in the bank so that we could go do some product work. And these days, the goal is to do enough consulting to break even, essentially, and have everyone else work on products. So I think it's about 50-50, probably. Yeah, so it turns out that our prior open source work was not enough to make us all independently wealthy, weirdly. <laughs> That's weird. Uh, Can't you cash in those core team membership cards for something? Yeah, I'm waiting for my internet dollars to show up. I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So <laughs> anyway, when we when we all started the company, none of us have had big uh, internet IPO cash outs. None of us have uh, really uh, been in that position. So uh, we decided to start consulting as effectively uh, like a seed round almost. So instead of bringing in some angel investors and burning time doing that, um, we decided to do consulting as the mechanism to put some money in the bank, uh, and that basically gave us a little bit of a of a nest egg, I guess. And then now. We do the consulting to basically uh, keep us solvent and, and keep our burn rate down. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is, it, is it five of you still? Uh, yeah, uh, six. It's actually six. Uh, so five of us here on site. Uh, we have four engineers in the company, and then uh, and Peter, who's one of our engineers, actually works remotely from Southern California. 
Gotcha. Uh, and it turns out being out of the office makes them extremely productive. <laughs> <laughs> this, True. this seems to be um, very much a team that is built out of the open source world. You have a ton of core contributors to various open source projects in there. Did you guys meet through open source initially? Uh, so I- the way I think about it is that I've been accumulating all these people for years, <laughs> uh, starting with Leia. Uh, <laughs> who you married. Kyle, yes, who I married. <laughs> but um, I met Carl working uh, at Engineard on Rails, and I met um, Tom working at Strobe on Ember, also Peter. So I sort of, um, the last few companies that I've been at have all been venture-backed, and they had the property of spreading everyone to the winds like Tom was talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just... My goal when people got spread to the winds was just to make sure that the people that I thought were the highest quality stuck with me. So um, I ended up accumulating the best people of the last few companies, and those are the people that started Strobe. But it was actually through I mean, open Tilda. The people started Tilda. Yeah, it actually was through uh, through open source, which is how Yehuda and I met. Uh, because I I had I had basically gotten this gig at Apple uh, working on a JavaScript framework called SproutCore um, that I was completely unqualified for. I like barely knew JavaScript at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and then Yehuda started getting involved in Sprout Core, kind of as an outside organization, uh, at, when he was at Strobe and I was still at Apple. And so we actually started working together, and the first time we ever met was when we had basically API discussions, like, you know, how, how should we evolve the Sprout Core API in a way that both uh, helps Apple with their products that they built on top of Sprout Core and, and how Yehuda thought the open source community would want it to go. Hmm. And I rarely encounter people who, when I'm talking about uh, APIs has a reasonably good sense of what the constraints are. So really mm-hmm. all API design problems are constraint-solving problems. You have to enter a bunch of, of the use cases, try to figure out which ones make sense to build an API around, and then solve create a single API that solves all the constraints. And very, very few people have an intuitive sense that that's the problem that you're trying to solve. And uh, when I met Tom, it was obvious that he understood that, and so I glommed on pretty quickly. Huh. So is it, is it mostly about sort of managing your trade-offs as you're building the API? Is that what you're thinking about as you do it? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that that's, I explicitly talk about that pretty much in all the APIs that I design is, and all the feedback that I get when someone says, hey, this API that you designed isn't quite right. We actually need to solve this other problem. Usually they're throwing another uh, constraint over the wall. And then if you had a good sense in the first place of what constraints were entering into the, the API decision, it's easy to say, you know, sometimes you say, well, it's impossible. This, this thing that you just sent us is completely the opposite of this other constraint that we thought we had. So one of them has to go. Mm. Or, or more likely you say, okay, now, now we have a really hard problem. And you, you just sort of sit on a whiteboard and, and write down all the constraints and try to figure out what API is going to satisfy all of them. Hmm. But I think thinking about it in that way is the most effective way to build APIs for for general abstractions. Well, I think the really important part about an API is that it's very, very easy to just slap stuff on that solves a particular problem, and it's very, very tempting to do that as a library author, right? Because people are using the product, and there's this very common complaint of like, hey, I'm running into this problem. Um, and so it's very, very easy for whatever the first solution that people come up with yeah. uh, to just patch that in, right? But but composability, to me, composability is the, is the hardest challenge when you're designing an API because... Uh, well, first, you want to make sure that you're solving the entire set of problems, right? If you don't solve it completely the first time, you're going to add a new concept on top, and then maybe you didn't think through that one all the way, so now you add a new concept. And now for a beginner, it's fine for old users, Yeah. but if you're a new user of the framework, when you come in, now all of a sudden, wow, there's all of these concepts I really need to understand if I want to be an effective user. Yeah. Uh, and I think more importantly, taking the concepts that you know in one area of the framework and moving them to another and making sure that all these features work together is very, very challenging, but it 
boy, does it pay off in spades. Yep. And and for what it's worth, DHH, I think, has a really good intuitive sense, specifically in areas where he has a problem or a problem space. I think his intuition about how to do this is right. Um, I like to think that I, what I got out of DHH was an appreciation for that process, but I've tried to hone it a little more into a science. So DHH's gut is, is more often right than my gut. Mm. But um, I, I sometimes feel like I can arrive at really good solutions just by – uh, trying to think about what scientifically DHH's gut is doing and then trying to apply <laughs> it to a problem. <laughs> so, uh, Tom, that thing you're telling me of, of users come come with this sort of weird problem and they and they want a patch put in that, that solves their solution reminds me of this conversation I had recently with uh, Eric Michael Zober about Omnioth. And he said in the early days of Omnioth, they're sort of, we're sort of just jamming more and more strategi- strategies in there. It's like, oh, well, I want to authenticate with this weird Russian yep. social network. And yep. he's like, well, okay, I, this probably works. Let's merge it. And sort of just ended up with these things that had never even, he'd never even seen in the wild. Uh, they eventually ended up moving to a strategy um, model where you can submit your own strategies that are sort of uh, independent of each other and let you yep. do this sort of plug and play thing and compose a strategy. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and unfortunately, there's a lot of pressure because uh, – and you have to strike the right trade-off, right? Because you can't be in an ivory tower. You can't defer and defer and defer and defer because at the end of the day, there's real developers working in real companies with real products. And, uh, and for them to, um, to not have an answer is, of course, not acceptable because eventually they're just going to bail, right? So I think that the really tough part about uh, the – the line that you have to walk as a, as a framework author is, okay, how do I strike the right balance between pragmatism and finding a solution that's not just a hack? Yeah. And it must help to be using this stuff all the time yourselves. Absolutely. It's got to be essential, right? If there's one thing that DHH convinced me of when I was working on Rails was that open source projects where people are tending to... So he said to me um, when I was working on Rails, like, what app are you working on that's, uh, that's a Rails 3 app at the time? And I didn't have any at the time. And I was really frustrated that he thought that that was crucial, again, at the time. Yeah. Um, but in retrospect, his strategy, which is if you're wanting to be on Rails Core, you have to have an app that's close to master, I think was the right thing. And it's essentially how I run Ember. Yeah. So I want to I add an important corollary though there, though, because um, a lot of people think that there's kind of this meme, like if you read Hacker News comment threads, um, a lot of people will say, you know, in order for something to be good, it has to be extracted. There's no way for people to just, like, think up something in a vacuum and have it be actually useful to real-world developers. Mm. Um, so we'll call this the DHH principle. And I actually really agree with it. I think that's totally true. However, I think it's a double-edged sword. The double-edged sword is that um, it's very easy, if you are extracting it from your application, to have that framework turn into a framework that is only good for that application. Or uh, even worse, to turn into a framework that is extremely difficult for new developers to tackle, right? Because, of course, for you, every new piece of complexity is incremental. And you can amortize that over the time of it being incremented, uh, in being implemented. Right. But if you're a new developer and you come in, you have, this, uh, you have this framework that has all of these concepts. Oh, my gosh, there's so much stuff I have to learn. And it feels really, really bad. It's just too... It's a pretty big mountain to climb. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually a thing that we've been doing that I've found extremely valuable uh, for our open source efforts is we've been teaching these intro classes mm. where we go uh, and we basically sit people down who have never used Ember ever before, and we have to explain these concepts and why they're good. And <laughs> I would recommend if there are any open source developers listening, 
try to do something like this. Sit down with someone who's never used your software before and walk them through the process. Ours is like a three-day thing, and it is incredibly humbling. It's like user testing for your yeah, for, for open source. Yeah. Huh. It, yeah, I, so one, one thing on this topic that I feel is often missed is I think from, uh, from the extraction perspective, a lot of people feel like um, the way you extract is that you find a problem and then you take the solution and you extract it verbatim into an open source project. And the, the, people think that there's basically only extractable problems and problems that are not generic enough to abstra- extract. Hmm. But in, in fact, there's um, a big middle ground where uh, you have things that are – a lot of people solving problems in quite similar ways. And the differences between how they're solving them are mostly trivial. And I think, again, this is really DHH's core insight in Rails was not that everybody was writing exactly Rails and not that everyone would look at Rails and say, this is exactly the API I want, but more that everyone was solving essentially the same problem in ways that were only trivially different. Mm-hmm. And if you do a good job at building APIs, you find something that, that a lot of people can, can live with and you get the network effect of having a lot of people using the same thing by focusing on things that are similar, not, not things that are exactly the same, and of course not things that are different, you get the most value out of synthesizing things that are similar to each other. Mm. So, so how do you strike the balance between uh, sort of a very general solution that you think is going to work for people in a lot of different ways and has maybe a lot of pluggable situations or um, things that people can change versus decisions where you say, no, this is a core philosophy of this framework and therefore we're just not going to allow this to happen? Um, so good question. Uh, I think every framework needs a few core principles that are, that are extremely important to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so an example is in Rails and both and Ember, there's the idea of convention over configuration. If you find yourself uh, saying that the solution to a problem is configuration, just configure that. You've made a mistake. I think Rails, some of Rails' mistakes have been related to this. Hmm. Where you you figure, oh, you know, we don't really know the answer to that. We'll just tell people to configure it. Right. Doesn't really work. Um, Ember, a lot of Ember has to do with reducing boilerplate and uh, specifically finding ways for people to write things declaratively. So use markup, use um, uh, use a, a computer property, or basically use some declarative feature instead of saying, listen for this event, and then go trigger this other thing. So basically anytime anybody comes to us with a solution that says the solution is you listen for some event and then you go do something else, it might actually solve their specific problem at this, at this moment, but it's obvious that it doesn't fit in with the general feeling. So I think the, re- the, the core thing is that you need to understand what your principles are and push back hard against people that have reasonable solutions to problems that don't fit in with your core principles. Um, but then other than that, it's mostly just a matter of uh, if someone comes to you with a, a suggestion... You take the suggestion if you start trying to integrate it, and a lot of people start saying that it doesn't satisfy their use case. Uh, Turbolinks is an example of this. Um, if so, you, it may solve your initial use case, but if a lot of people start coming to you and saying, I'm trying to use this, and it doesn't work for this or that, you should consider whether you've really solved the generic problem. Um, and maybe that's the right time to drop down to a primitive, to do something pluggable. Uh, I think Turbolinks would be a really good feature if it was a low-level primitive that you could plug into. Hmm. Um, I think, for example, GitHub should be able to use it for their PJAX approach. But instead, it's this really big solution that works really well for some particular scenarios, but then everyone else is kind of left out in the cold. Hmm. And also, there just may be things that, there may be problems you solve in your own apps that are not generally useful to the world. Not everything needs to be extracted. Yeah, I think you wait until you hear like five or ten people tell you essentially the same thing before you even start thinking about extracting something. Yeah, makes sense. 
So you you were saying that you think you agree with DHH and saying that he you, everyone needs to be on a core team needs to be using the the project a lot. Is is Skylight your Ember project? Uh, so we you want to talk about this? Well, so yeah, so actually, I think that the three things that we do have been tremendously useful because uh, because they give us such good insights from different perspectives. Hmm. So the first, as I mentioned, was doing this training where we are constantly reminded of what it's like for a new user to see what Ember is like, completely fresh perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do that over and over again. So actually, it's been pretty cool because we've basically, after every training, we do a debrief. And we're like, okay, where did the API like fail people? What was really confusing for them? And we actually incorporate those fixes into the framework. So that's been really great. Mm. Um, that, that feels reflected in your docs, by the way. And uh, as you can imagine, the majority of the consulting that we, uh, we've been hired on to do is looking at Ember apps. So, um, <clears throat> so for us to be able to go around the country and go into the offices of people and like sit down, look at their code, and discuss these things, mm. it's really given us a sense of like, okay, where are the common pain points? And it, that basically validates like we have an idea that something's a problem, but it's not until we actually go in and we get boots on the ground developer, boots on the ground developers, that we really understand what the constraints are. And then third, yeah, we have Skylight, which is uh, our app. Uh, it's running on top of Rails and Java, and it's both an Ember.js and an Ember Data app. So that lets us kind of, it's basically like a playground where we can test out new ideas before we uh, unleash them on the public. And before we worked on Skylight, we worked on Isaac, which didn't pan out. But I think pretty much the entire time we've been at mm-hmm. Tilda working on Ember, we've had some app that we were able to work on and, and get a sense for what, yep. what was up. Yep. Mm. That trifecta seems like it's got to be really powerful. Like, if more open source people could do all those three things, it would just be a better world for us. I feel the same way. Uh, the only problem is extremely exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> three day boot camps and whatever gem you pull out, you must teach a, a boot camp. <laughs> I think, in particular, training is really valuable in the sense that it's really, really easy to lose track of the beginner experience and like how people feel when they approach the stuff for the first time yeah. and getting just. Obviously, if you overfocus on beginners, I think often the sales process has this problem, right? If you overdrive your product based on sales, you end up with something, a lot of superficial benefits and advanced users get stuck, right? So you, you don't want to only do that, but I think having a sense of what people feel like when they approach your framework for the first time is quite, quite valuable. Yeah, plus that experience of teaching beginners almost any topic invariably makes you understand it better and appreciate it better yeah. when someone asks you those questions that you just hadn't considered because it's been so long. Yeah, and I think that everyone that we have at the training comes from a different perspective. So I remember at one training we had a guy who worked on like he worked at Oracle and worked at, on like C plus plus drivers or something like that. So uh, so his background was completely different, and f- being forced to come up with some kind of vocabulary or description of how things are working for someone who had just never encountered the MVC pattern before mm-hmm. was because uh, valuable because that now feeds back. So when we're writing documentation for the framework, we can recall these uh these encounters that we've had and try to figure out okay maybe if i put this just a little bit differently the light bulb will go off for someone yeah totally and I, so i haven't had a chance to use ember yet but i was looking at your docs today and they're very friendly and, and one of the things i liked was that um they seem complete and written in a fairly approachable way but also there's a there's a section on sort of more advanced topics like this is an in-depth look at the view layer of ember you right, don't yeah. need to know this if you're a new user of, of the framework <laughs> and like just just that sentence right there is like i think shows such a good compassion and understanding of your users like yeah if you want this data it's here but also please ignore this if you don't need it uh yeah so actually yuda has been spending a lot of time thinking about um i don't know if it's the term that you came up with but the conceptual ladder that you climb mm. as a new user right so we want to make sure that we segregate uh 
that information because it's very, very easy to be overwhelmed quickly. And we're still iterating on this. I think it's actually interesting because not too long ago, maybe six months ago, everyone pandas were having really bad documentation. Mm. Um, and I think that was just a function of the framework, still, us still figuring out, like, okay, before we spend a lot of time working on documentation, let's make sure that, the, <laughs> that we've got the right thing. Yeah. Uh, and now that we've got the right thing, we've spent so much time, um, and especially I'll want to thank uh, Trek Blocky who wrote, and compiled the getting started guide, which in particular is, is crazy because it actually breaks down each step into different git commits. So you can see the diff between every commit. And I think something like that that is just really, really friendly for beginners that's basically like, I know that there's some new concepts here. I know that you don't understand them. So let's just like walk you through the process. And I think learning by example is really powerful for a lot of people. Yeah. It's surprising how important the ability to teach is for getting a new thing out there, whether it's open source software or a product or something like that. The ability to actually write down what you're supposed to do and what you need to know. Probably the only thing more important than that is having a high res logo. (laughs) Absolutely. And nice black and white pictures of your team. Absolutely. On the about page. (laughs) I saw I saw a tweet from Ruby Thought Leaders about this the other day. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I, me too. Um, so, let's, <laughs> want to talk about Skylight a little bit? Sure. Can you give the uh, elevator pitch for Skylight? Yeah. So, the idea behind Skylight is, of course, everybody wants to be able to evaluate the performance of their application. People want to get a sense of how fast or slow things are. But the way that most people today evaluate the performance of their application is by looking at average response time. So you say, how fast is this page? And you say the average response time is 100 milliseconds. And unfortunately, average response time is actually worse almost than not knowing anything at all (laughs) in many cases. What's misleading? Uh, Quite misleading. So in particular, if you hear that your average response time is 100 milliseconds, I think your gut feeling is going to be that maybe 200 or 300 milliseconds are... Are, are going to be possible, but you would find it very hard to believe that you know a, a second or two seconds would be a common response time. But it doesn't, that doesn't turn out to be reality. So what you really need is, is something that shows you um, a histogram or a, a graph of all the response times in some way that you can look at it, get a quick intuitive sense of what's going on. Um, and in Skylight, what we're trying to do as well is allow you to select an area of that response time. So if you want to say, okay, I have some responses that are taking more than a second. I want to know why those things are slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, letting you select those re- requests and get an aggregate sense of what's up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let me give you a concrete example. Um, mm-hmm. I, so I think, uh, so first, the, the average, if someone tells you an average about a distribution, we as humans have a certain intuitive sense about what that means, right? right. So, so for example, if I said, hey, uh, Chad, the average height of a man in the United States is six feet. Well, your intu- intuition would say, okay, I'll probably run into some men that are five feet tall, and I'll probably run into some men in my lifetime that are seven feet tall. But in fact, if human height was distributed the same way that web application performance is distributed, running into an 11 or 12 foot tall man on the sidewalk would be completely an, an everyday occurrence, right? Mm-hmm. So our intuition about these numbers that we're seeing in most tools is just completely wrong. Right, so people and, are assuming that these are normally distributed numbers. Right, they, they close their eyes. When, when you say an average, then you're just gut as a human being is to picture a bell curve, and there's nothing you can do to avoid that, right? It's just like, that's just how our intuition works. Yeah. Uh, but our intuition is wrong in, in cases where you have what we call these log normal distributions. Um, and I think even worse, the reason that uh, these averages become not just useless but misleading is because uh, it, <laughs> it turns out that the programming language that you're using is Turing complete. And it has things like branches, right? So, so here's a good example. 
it, it's obvious, uh, if you think about it, that the performance characteristics of a cache hit versus a cache miss are completely different, right? Because basically you have this branch. Like, if I have a cache value, return that. That's obviously very fast. If I don't, go and do some expensive computation. But an average conflates those two into a number that's completely meaningless. Hmm. So what we want to do is basically when you log in, we're not going to show you just a dumb number. We're going to show you, uh, first of all, the 95th percentile worst response time, which I like to think of as like, what's the average worst thing that someone's going to hit? Um, and, and Google in particular has done a lot of research to show that um, fast performance doesn't mean anything if it's not consistent. So having 200 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds is far better than 50, 50, one second. Yeah, so one way to think about 95th percentile is that one out of every 20 requests will hit this, which means that if a user goes through 20 requests, there's a decent chance they'll hit this. And of course, anytime a user is using an application, they're hitting it. So you shouldn't think of it. I think a lot of people want to think of the 95th percentile as some like weird outlier case. <laughs> but really, the 95th percentile is just a, a slow request that your users will routinely encounter as they're moving around your application. Mm. So can I ask you a hard question? Yeah. So there's, there's like an 800-pound gorilla in this same space that everyone knows already, right? Yep. So it, if, if they took your statistics-based approach and took, in, took to heart what you're telling me now and showed this same data, um, is that going to ruin your afternoon? Uh, I don't think it's going to ruin our, our afternoon, uh, and specifically here's why. Um, I think any company that takes uh, as much money as, as uh, New Relic, for example, has, uh, any, any VC-backed company, there is uh, immense pressure to grow. And I think, and so you see this trend, right? I think you've seen this uh, with a lot of companies in the, in the Ruby community especially, where they start focused on Ruby, they start focused on Rails, uh, but then there's so much pressure to, to grow that they end up becoming polyglot, right? Mm. We got to support Node, we got to support Java, we got to support all these different things. Mm-hmm. For us, all we care about is Rails. And I think even if they copied us feature for feature, um, I believe that our focus on just making the Rails user experience best as possible would mean that we'd be the choice for Rails developers. Right. I, and and one, one interesting thing about this is um, I remember when New Relic first got started, they were quite good at instrumenting Rails, really understanding Rails. Um, and th- but now as they've become polyglot, they've done a lot less work of really trying to get into the guts of your application and trying to understand, you know, what is Thin doing? What is Unicorn doing? They basically say, you know, if you want to know, like, when your response happened and you're using Unicorn, like, sorry, you should try to, like, instrument that at the network layer or something like that. And I, what basically what that ends up meaning is that uh, while there is a lot of you, it is theoretically possible for them to get collect a lot more expensive data and present it. Um, they would also have to sp- put a lot of energy on instrumenting a lot of what is happening inside of a Rails application. And we think that we could, we think that by focusing heavily, we can do a better job at instrumenting Rails in particular. And and we're willing to go in and you know monkey patch thin if we have to or monkey patch unicorn if that's what we need to do to get the information we're willing to do that and we're not really i think we're we have a very strong um sense against telling people like oh just add this to your unicorn config right we really want things to to just work we think that every little one of those things where we you have to tell some new user that they have to go do some configuration in some area of their system it's going to be error prone things are going to things are going to fail there's a lot of them it's going to really likely to not work correctly so yeah i think in general i'm i'm anticipating um a lot of companies are going to come in i think there's a huge market opportunity right now 
where there's a lot of a lot of companies that had a product started in Rails or whatever whatever uh, software ecosystem they started in, and they've basically they've forgotten about how important user experience is, and the ease of use has slowly descended to the point where it's actually a little bit frustrating to use if you're getting started. Hmm. I think I think we're going to see a lot of companies like this. Like a lot of products like Skylight come in where there's kind of an incumbent player that's forgotten about ease of use. Right. I think that's true. I think you see that play out a lot, actually. I, I think I'm sorry to, to hit on Heroku, who I think people like and I still like. But I think it's pretty clear that since Heroku went polyglot, they have, it has, they have not been putting as much energy into making it really easy to get started. So, for example, if you make a new Rails app right now and push it to Heroku, there's at least a half a dozen things that don't go that don't work correctly that you have to configure and if you're a if you're a seasoned rails developer that's fine but knowing that you have to put postgres in your production group and that you need to move sqlite out all these things are things that if they were really focusing on rails i think right. they would not have the problem yeah like i i'm actually not a seasoned rails developer uh i've basically been doing javascript my entire career and i went to go deploy a, a rails app to heroku and it just gave me this really cryptic error about sqlite 3 and it was not at all obvious it was basically just like i couldn't find the gcc or something like this so i had to go google and all this stuff and of course i eventually found the answer which is i just have to put the sqlite 3 gem in a different group but it's like come on this is literally rails new my app and then deploy using heroku and it's giving you error messages this is something that should be fixed yeah so you guys are in closed beta right now is that true uh, yeah, we just started onboarding our first batch of customers last week. So uh, we announced that we announced at RailsConf, and now we're really excited about getting people on. But um, it so part of providing the value that Skylight does is we have to collect a ton of just a ton of information. And I think that that's actually a competitive advantage for us too, because we have Carl Lurch who who worked on uh, Rails three. Probably most listeners know him from Rails three. Turns out he's like a computer science genius, which is a good thing I didn't know when I started a company with him. Uh, <laughs> but it turns out that he's doing some really, really powerful arcane stuff hmm. that allows us to uh, collect the amount of data that you actually need to be able to deliver these histograms. So we just want to be very careful uh, in terms of onboarding that we don't bring down uh, our servers, but more importantly, your servers, because, of course, you're running our agent uh, in your app. Right. So you're just hit- customers are hitting the system right now. Have you had any big surprises? Uh, so I, just to be clear, we had a couple of customers that have been with us for, for the entire time, basically, that we've mil- been building the product. Okay. Um, the people that we brought on board right now are essentially the first batch of people that signed up through the system. So we had some customers that we personally reached out to earlier. Um, my personally, my biggest surprise was that people were s- themselves surprised at the, re- at the numbers. Mm. Um, early on, people thought... We thought maybe we had bugs, but um, people get a really misleading view. People think that everything's fine by looking at New Relic, and then right. a lot of people look at our numbers in the, when they first log in, and they're like, wow, that is totally different from my Sticker perception. shock, yeah. yeah. Huh. Well, that's, that's, I mean, awesome, right, in a way? It's, it's good and bad. I think yeah. we, we really have to push um, – some of our first customers, we have to really push them to realize that uh, – the the five percent of your custom the five percent of your requests are hit by almost all of your customers. I think pe- people really because they're so used to looking at you know hundred or hundred fifty milliseconds in New Relic and thinking that everything's a okay, everything's awesome. They want to look at our ninety fifth percentile number and say ah oh, that's an outlier like that doesn't really matter. We can we'll just ignore those and get back to work. And I think helping people understand that the thing that they're seeing is real and it's just not the same thing as the rosy picture that New Relic was giving you has it's definitely. Been something that we had to think a lot about how to explain. Yeah, 
Um, but I, but it gives you reality. It gives you truth. <laughs> so mm. yeah, cool. Well, maybe you can uh, sneak us into your private beta or something. I've got one or two Rails apps. Awesome. Yeah, we, we'll bump you to the front. For All right, sure. cool. We'll have to talk about that. Um, so, uh, anything? Any ideas on what's coming down the road for Ember? Anything on the, the internal roadmap or something like that? Uh, well, I would say the most important thing is that we're we're honing in on a 1.0 right now. The API has been uh, dr- dramatically stabilized. Um, we we got punked pretty hard uh, in the hacker <laughs> news circles. Uh, if you were watching, if you're reading hacker news, you probably saw some of the uh, vitriol that was uh, directed our way. <laughs> Uh, but um, but since then, basically since we had our first uh, event here in San Francisco called Ember Camp, which was like the first international Ember event, um, we are our number one priority has been stabilization, mm-hmm. and uh, I am happy to report that that has been very successful, and the number of apps being built on top of Ember continues to grow. We're starting to see this kind of groundswell of documentation and and screencasts. Um, so Ryan Florence has been working on Ember101.com, which has been really awesome. So I think for us, we've reached a point of, of stability. Uh, we've reached a point where we're, set, we're happy to put a 1.0 on it because uh, people are building apps. Um, that being said, I think that we have some long-term plans. Uh, as you know, uh, as you may know, Yehuda is on both W3C and TC39, which for those uh, not familiar, TC39 is basically just like the, the committee that's in charge of creating and designing the next version of JavaScript or ECMAScript. Um, so in particular, we've been working very closely with our friends at Mozilla and our friends at Google to make sure that Ember is basically on a trajectory to be compatible with the future of the web platform. Mm. So in particular, there's a bunch of features coming in ES6 and ES7 that we will take advantage of to make syntax nicer, faster, more powerful. Um, and I think something that we're both really excited about is, is web components and basically replacing as much as we can of the Ember view layer with these web components, which is basically just a way for you to define your own custom HTML tags using JavaScript. You guys are totally playing on uh, trading on insider information over there, huh? Uh, it's, it's all public. Okay. It's open webs. If you, can, if you can tolerate reading the ES Discuss mailing list, you can have the same <laughs> insights that we have. <laughs> well, I can't. <laughs> yes, you. I well, yes. that that's good. Most people can't, so we will pay the pain. We will pay the pain cost for you. Yes. All right. Well, I'll, and, and I in turn will check out Ember because your docs good. are so friendly. Deal. You got a deal. All right. Yeah, I'm really excited. You know, one thing that's always surprised me uh, the past over the past, I guess, year or so. I mean, I think that Backbone has basically plateaued at this point, and a lot of the a lot of the limitations that we were telling people that they would hit a year or two ago. Uh, People have now hit them themselves, and I think they're more willing to listen to our message now, which is great. But I was always so surprised uh, that Rails developers were willing to put up with something like Backbone because mm. the the impedance mismatch between something like Rails and Backbone is so big. Like Backbone is literally 900 lines of code. Right. Your conventions uh, are we, gone. Yeah, well, it's, it's not an exaggeration. It's literally 900 lines of code. Mm-hmm. So it's just really not doing that much for you, and you can contrast that with something like Rails, which obviously is doing a ton for you, even out of the box before you do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you have to manually—it's—it's it's by definition configuration, but it's all configuration by writing imperative code. Um, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, my general feeling about this is that people um, people were believed DHH's general message, or themselves came to it, which is. I don't really need that much JavaScript. JavaScript's kind of like an afterthought. 
So I, I don't really need to think about this space of my app as a convention over configuration part of it because I'll mostly be doing everything in Rails anyway. But it turns out that many, many people who are building applications where they even think they need Backbone end up writing that tens of thousands of lines meg- up to a megabyte of JavaScript. And so once you're writing that much JavaScript, you really should be thinking about how to use tools that will help you organize it better. And, but I think people really want to, they want to come into the situation assuming that they'll be able to get away with very little JavaScript and don't stop to think a lot about the fact that that hasn't really turned out to be the case. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, basically every web application I look at that is modern and feels nice to use has between 500K and a megabyte of JavaScript, right? Mm-hmm. So, at, and I think uh, I would implore people who are working on a Rails app, if you go look at the amount of JavaScript that you have and it's more than a few hundred K, please stop trying to do it in ad hoc fashion. Please, I don't care if it's Ember or something else that you use, but please start thinking of your JavaScript in a holistic way and stop trying to just like spackle it on top. Hmm. Sounds you know, good. Like it's it's fine for you to think that you will write an application that doesn't have a lot of JavaScript. That's totally fine, and maybe you're right. But but please, if you ever exceed this threshold, you need to revisit your assumptions. Hmm. Plus, code tends tends to beget more code. Once yes. you once you open that floodgate, it's it's you re- always end up going back. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think that actually uh, wraps things up, guys. So if if people want to get in touch with you, what's a good way to do that? Probably Twitter is the best option. Yeah, yeah, probably the Twitter. Twitter's the best, depending on whether I've rage quit that day or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, or we can find uh, you. So I'm at Tom Dale. This is at Ycats. Yeah. Um, or Tilda.io. Tilda.io for our company, if you want to see some really beautiful uh, black and white headshots <laughs> of us. I actually hate that haircut that I have. I think I look like such a dweeb. Uh, oh, jeez. I look like an old man. <laughs> I look like I have a comb-over in that photo. My God. So if you want to see Tom's comb-over... Tilda.io. <laughs> there's, a, there's your sales pitch. That's the sales pitch. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming by and uh, being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much, Chad. We really appreciate it being here. Yeah, that's Ben, not Chad. <laughs> so, sorry. It's all right. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, there you go. We'll edit you out, Tom. Okay. You want to say thanks seems- a lot, Ben? Thanks for being here, guys. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot, Ben. Really appreciate it. Yeah. So if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 53. Today's podcast was recorded by Anna Mariola, edited by Edward Lovell, and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening.